Welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, brought to you by the Sportsman Channel. All hunting, all fishing, all the time. Contact your local network provider and ask about the Sportsman Channel today. Now here's your host of Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, Christian Berg. All right, welcome to another episode of Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting, and we're glad that you've taken some time to listen today and hopefully learn a thing or two about this great sport. My guest today is no stranger uh, to those of you whitetail fanatics uh, and regular readers of the magazine. It's field editor Bill Winky. Uh, Bill, thanks for being with us today and uh, talking some whitetail with us. Hey, it's my pleasure. Uh, happy to be here. Looking forward to it. Yeah, uh, I guess we might as well just jump right into it. And, you know, the purpose of this episode was to kind of catch up with you postseason. Uh, I guess it's not necessarily uh, completely postseason. We've got maybe some late season hunting ahead of us, but the, the bulk of the regular archery season is behind us here. It's the 2nd of December. And uh, I guess if we had to sum it up, it's kind of like the rut that never was or maybe the rut that's still to come or we're just scratching our heads and kind of wondering what went on in 2010 and I think that that's uh, kind of a general consensus amongst a lot of whitetail hunters throughout uh, North America this year. It's been a wacky year, hasn't it, Bill? Yeah, it really has. I've talked to a lot of people and I have uh, regular contact with a lot of people through email and through some of the social media uh, that I'm involved in and it seems like it's a pretty small minority of the bow hunters uh, that that feel like it was a, a good rut or even a normal rut. I have gotten a lot of responses from people saying that it's the worst that they've ever seen or it's the worst they can remember or the worst in 20 years or, or whatever the the, uh, the measurement might be. Just uh, a lot of people are, are feeling like it was a, a really poor season. And, uh, you know, I think the you guys come away from that trying to, figure out what went wrong, um, you know, why was it the way it was, and uh, is it possible to predict something like that, you know, the next time it may happen and, and adjust your strategies ahead of time or whatever, but um, this one's got a lot of people scratching their heads. Um, the, the, you know, there's a lot of questions about the moon. You know, people are asking, you know, could the moon have caused, you know, the rut to spread, spread out to the point where there was no, you know, peak of the rut. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, you know, the answer to that one, to be honest with you. I mean, my gut feeling says it's possible, but I, I don't, I don't believe that is, is really the primary reason why the rut was so poor. Uh, the only thing I keep falling back on is testing that's been done with fetus dating of, uh, you know, the little, I guess with does when they've been shot during the late season, they'll go back in and they'll, they'll measure the size of the unborn fetuses of the fawns and, mm-hmm. and determine when the conception occurred. And, uh, the testing that I've seen that was scientifically conducted and, and widely, um, you know, widespread enough to be conclusive uh, showed that in the Midwest, at least the areas, you know, that I'm most familiar with is the Midwest, November 15th, plus or minus a day, is the average peak of the rut. And they ran this data over three years. And there's different moon phases and different temperatures and, and lots of things, you know, that could have created interference in that test, and they said each year for that three-year study, this was done in Missouri, they came up with November 15th. And uh, that kind of falls in line with what I've always thought, too, is, you know, right around the very middle of November. So, you know, I don't know that that we can say that the moon caused this, uh, you know, the, 
the people who are you know really moon moon uh, uh, knowledgeable much more so than me might have a different thought on it but uh, it was just weird um, you know I I know you know typically what what people were seeing was not very much mature buck activity you know during daytime and really not a whole lot of of cruising even among the, the younger age classes of bucks it's almost like you know the the early pre-rut where a few animals are on their feet kind of nosing around it seemed like the whole rut was like that this year yeah so, i mean least, yeah most of what i saw and, and heard from people you know for the most part when you did see you know a buck uh chasing some does or it was typically your younger bucks, and the, the big ones just didn't seem to have a whole lot of uh, daylight activity. Yeah, it, it almost was, was like they weren't here. And uh, you know, we, we run trail cameras, so we know what's here. And there was some really nice deer on the farm that uh, I spent a lot of time hunting this past season and, and really did not see those deer, you know, not, not even once. I was out there for a solid month in what I felt were pretty close to the core areas for these individual deer that I was hunting and never saw them, you know, day after day after day, you know, that's 60 times in a tree stand. And you'd like to think that someplace in the distance, you'd see one crossing a ridge or something. But um, to the best of my knowledge, those deer didn't do anything during the daytime. <laughs> so pretty tough to kill them with a bow when they don't move during the day. And that seems to be the story of the 2010 rut. So it was a pretty difficult season for you there at your place in Iowa, Bill? Yeah, it really was, and, and uh, you know, I ended up shooting the deer on the 24th of November. Our shotgun season or firearm season doesn't come in until the first Saturday in December. You know, so as we're talking now, I'm still bow hunting, uh, this being the 2nd of December. I've still got two more evenings uh, in the tree stand, and I've got enough, you know, w- with the owning land, I've got another tag that I can fill, so, you know, I'm continuing to hunt. But uh, basically what we saw in a nutshell was if you didn't have a hot doe either right by the tree stand or in the immediate proximity of your stand, uh, you didn't see very much buck activity. And uh, that's what we saw. I mean, basically, you know, three or four times during that whole 30 days of solid hunting, we had hot does around, and that's when we had all of our action. You could take those three or four days out of the rut, I'd feel like I was hunting in the Mojave Desert. Um, that's Mm. That's how little activity we were seeing, you know, that just the typical rut cruising that you kind of stake your season on, you know, bucks going through funnels and, you know, poking around, checking things out. We just didn't see that kind of activity. And is that something that, uh, you know, with your, with your Midwest whitetail website and the teams that you have, and, you know, I don't know how many it is now, Bill, it was seven or eight other states, right, uh, throughout the Midwest and out into even uh, Pennsylvania and New York, uh, you know, heading east uh, a little bit. Is that a similar kind of scenarios that your guys were kind of relaying to you throughout the seasons in those other places? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'd say from, uh, you know, from the kill standpoint, we're probably down 25%, you know, versus last year. And we actually run the show in, in 11 different locations. We've got 11 different series. So, I mean, we hit all the way from the Great Plains all the way to the, we, we have one area, you know, one uh, series we call the Northeast, which is your, Pennsylvania, New York, but all the, all the way across, you know, we've got pro staff scattered through that whole area. Most of these guys are pretty hardcore hunters, um, and which means that they're out there a lot. And uh, we just did not get the number of buck kills uh, this year that we had in 2009. And, and 
you know, I can only attribute that to the fact that everybody in the whole Midwest was struggling with the same issues. And, and I've gotten emails from people clear up into Alberta and Ontario and places in Canada where they had a lot of the same kind of issues. So um, I don't know. It's not, it's not a, um, based on what I've seen, it's not something that you can say is localized to say, well, maybe, you know, your farm got overhunted last year or, you know, maybe the buck to doe ratio is skewed on this particular property and that's why, you know, the rut is acting, you know, kind of quirky. Um, it's wider spread than that. In fact, I would say almost everywhere that I heard from people, they all had the same story. It was just, it was just a terrible rut. Uh, so I'm going to talk to some biologists and, and see what kind of ideas, you know, are out there because there's nothing you can do about it now, but... You know, in this game, really it comes down to knowledge. You know, the more you know about the animal that you're hunting, the better you are at figuring out what he's going to do next. Right. And, uh, yeah, well, that's... obviously... Yeah, that's... Ahead. that's uh, You know, you and I were talking the other day, and I was really, you know, completely concur, you know, with your observations because, you know, here in Pennsylvania, I, I was telling you, I've yet to even see a good buck, you know, during the day. Uh, in Illinois, where I hunted, it was okay, but it wasn't, you know, consistently gangbusters, and, um, it might be something interesting, actually, Bill, to, maybe you can, as you talk to those biologists and, you know, other knowledgeable, uh, experts in the world of whitetails, you know, maybe you, you might even come back with an article at some point in 2011, uh, for the magazine and try and make some sense out of what the heck, uh, what the heck happened in the fall of 2010 and because absent some kind of a, a theory you know like you say um you've got some some years of deer hunting experience under your belt you know and some things that you've kind of come to expect uh you know in terms of uh mid-november being that peak and, and counting on some good chasing and seeking activity you know that that first week in november or the in the end of the first week and into the second week and when it doesn't happen and you don't know why it's kind of like uh what do we hang our hats on going forward? You know, does this does this shake any of the the tried and true wisdom that you've gathered over the years, or do you just kind of chalk it up as an anomaly and try and move on? Well, I think at this point you just chalk it up as an anomaly for now. I mean, hopefully we don't see it again next year where we really have to deal with it. Otherwise, we're going to be doing deer drives and buying rifle tags because there's a there's no way to kill these buggers if they don't want to move during the day, um, and that's where the rut is always the great equalizer i think you know the early season you can sometimes get on a pattern and late season you can sometimes get on a pattern but uh the only way to consistently be you know in the game uh with whitetails with a bow is during the rut because that's the one thing that gets them on their feet during daylight and we, we rely so much on natural movement in fact really there's nothing else uh in most whitetail areas you know spot and stalk is possible some places but by and large you know with the places where most of our readers are hunting um, spot and stock for whitetail isn't going to work so we rely on the deer being on their feet um, so you know if, if they're not on their feet you know we're going to have to go back and reevaluate how we hunt these things but i think it's just a one-year thing um, you know i'm not losing any sleep over it just yet the uh, i think it's it's something that you know it'll shake itself out and next year, you know, we'll come back and we'll say, boy, I remember that 2010 rut? That was terrible compared to this year. <laughs> yeah, I hope That's so. That's what I'm hoping. Yeah, <laughs> me too. But uh, otherwise, no, I mean, and this can't be the new norm. There's nothing out there 
that, that it's not like all of a sudden there was so much hunting pressure in one year that the deer changed their behavior overnight across the whole you know United States or the whole Midwest. There's something in the patterns, something in the moon patterns or the weather patterns, or something happened this year that just caused this uh, yeah. shift in behavior. And we just hope that whatever it was that you know that aligned you know to create that, that it doesn't align anytime soon. So uh, we just uh, pray that it's not uh, global warming or El Nino or alien uh, radio waves from outer space, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm, that's what I'm hoping. I mean, I think you've nailed it. Um, I'm, I'm the most concerned about the alien radio waves. Maybe it's the anti-hunters. Maybe they've got some way now that they can, you know, do mind control with white-tailed deer. Um, you know, and, and you know, maybe we got to figure out where their little radar hub is at and disable that. But uh, it's uh, it's almost like that. You know, it, it, it's so dramatic uh, of a shift. I thought in behavior, and everybody else seemed to go along with that too. That it's it was just a real head scratcher. Uh, so, you know, we'll we'll try to get to the bottom of it. But like I said, I wouldn't I wouldn't think that this is the new norm. And for those people out there that just got into bow hunting recently, and you're thinking, man, this is not nearly what I expected. You know, I expected this to be a lot more exciting and see a lot more bucks. Yeah, you know, I just encourage you to hang in there because uh, what we saw this season isn't the norm. And you know, it, it'll be better next year. Uh, we we certainly believe it will be better next year well you know sitting here and and crying in our beer is is all well and good but i guess we ought to look forward a little bit too bill because you know sounds like you know you've got a a tag yet to fill i certainly have a tag yet to fill and there's a lot of other people out there in the same boat after this fall so maybe we should talk a little bit about late season hunting and some things we might try to do you know if 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 these bucks weren't on their feet during the rut for whatever reason during you know daylight shooting hours uh what's sort of our plan b at this point to look ahead to you know december and january and how we might still here pull out a miracle before it's all said and done well it's it's uh the late season hunting with a bow is always tough and people just need to be realistic about that it can be done i've shot some nice deer uh late season and i've had some miserable failures um late season too so as long as you're realistic about it you know it's it's going to be a, a fun experience there's a couple things that you have to find um you can either be just flat lucky which is always good or you can try to put together the combination of things that that do contribute to good late season hunting and these aren't really that big of a secrets um you need a really good food source and you know, we've got the advantage here as private landowners and managing deer on our farm is I can leave corn standing or I can leave beans standing in small plots. And anytime you can find an unharvested crop field near any type of a, a reasonable deer population, the late season is going to be pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's otherwise, you know, it gets to be challenging because, you know, one harvested cornfield is basically as good as the next. You know, and it's then it's really hard to concentrate the deer, and that that's the thing that makes the late season tough. And and uh, you know, without concentrating them and giving them some focused place to move into, you know, to feed, they're so wired after the firearm seasons are over, and uh, you know, they're they're so hard to kind of pin down. They're going to be here today and in a different field the next day, and they're coming out after dark, and 
you know, there's just a lot of challenges um, with putting that together for the late season. But if you have a environment where there's not just a ton of hunting pressure, you know, a little hunting pressure is not going to hurt you. You know, if it gets cold and there gets to be snow on the ground, you know, in the northern half of the U.S., um, then there's a pretty good chance that the deer are going to be, you know, pretty vulnerable in, in the areas where there's any kind of a really good food source, uh, mm-hmm. even if they've had some hunting pressure. So that's really it. You know, I mean, you find the good food near areas with decent numbers of deer, and then you, you hope for, you know, cold and, and snow. Um, and, and when that happens, the deer are going to flock to the easiest, most convenient available food. And, uh, you know, that's, that's where you can get them. But uh, in the absence of that, it just requires a lot of time sitting on the side of, of the gravel road with binoculars in hand, you know, watching the back corners of, of cornfields or bean fields and, you know, hoping to see at last light, you know, some kind of a good buck stepping out of the cover and then moving your tree stand in and making the best of it the next evening. Um, that's, that's about the only other really strategy that you've got is to cover some ground and, and uh, knock on some doors. Uh, try to find those places where they might be coming out before dark. Mm-hmm. So, so if you don't have, uh, you know, for instance, the areas where I hunt here in Pennsylvania, you're either uh, in your suburban type areas. There isn't a whole lot of agriculture, and in some of the more rural areas where farming is quite active, there really isn't much to be found in terms of standing crops at this point, because of course most of these farmers are not feeding deer they're making a living so you're basically saying you've got to get back to some serious scouting Mm -hmm. uh, in those kind of situations Uh, you're probably better off uh, doing some scouting or hunting from some stands that allow you to observe a pretty big area and then try to fine-tune your approach once you locate deer than just bopping around from place to place in the woods and putting in hours and hours uh, when you yeah you know, is that kind of you're better off? Yeah, you're better off finding them first before you even start to set your trap. Because uh, if you start setting random traps, you know, so to speak, all you're going to catch is nothing, basically. And and uh, um, it's it's a lot more of a chess match because you don't have, like we talked about with the rut, where you've got this this uh, energy going on in the in the woods that's keeping the deer on their feet. There's not that, um, and the only thing that we've found and, and we hunt areas that don't even get pressured real hard the only thing that really gets them on their feet is cold um and once in a while you'll find them on whenever the weather breaks that's another thing too to watch is it doesn't have to be just cold it seems like any break in the weather whether it breaks cold or breaks warm after a long cold spell that weather break um causes some pretty good movement too you know, almost like flipping a light switch on but you got to find the food um and if you're, if you're not in an agricultural area, probably the best thing to do is talk to um, a, a regional biologist. Uh, find somebody who really knows what the local deer in the area where you hunt feed on, and then find concentrations of that. And, um, you know, if it's some type of a browse, you know, if you're in an area that doesn't have, you know, open agriculture, uh, if it's, you know, whatever else it may be, you really need to identify what they're most likely eating and then find concentrations of that. And it's not easy. Um it really isn't, and and uh, but it still it still can be done. You know, people do it every year. There's always some big deer that are killed, and and you know, and some enjoyment in hunting that late season. Yeah, you, access is another thing too. You know, most people, you know, after the rut is over, 
they're not out there beating the bushes anymore. You know, and if you got a place where, you know, maybe somebody was hunting and you knocked on the door late season and the farmer may say, you know what, nobody's hunting here, you know, go ahead, you know, you can hunt this weekend or whatever. Um, the opportunities of, of getting in places are going to be a little bit better uh, during the late season than they would be during the prime times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really think, Bill, that, uh, you know, tagging a good buck in the late season uh, with the bow, that really is, uh, in my opinion, you know, I don't know how you feel about it, but in my opinion, it's about as close as you can come to the pinnacle of achievement uh, in this sport because it is really difficult. You know, of course, you know, a lot of the deer or the herd has already been thinned. And uh, in addition to, you know, having to locate them and, 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 and try and get some kind of a pattern together, of course, the woods are pretty barren at that time of the year. Uh, they tend to be quiet, so you have very little cover. You have uh, very little opportunity to make noise. You really have to be on top of your game. And, yeah. uh, I mean, I tip my hat whenever I see, you know, a photo or get an email from somebody who's, you know, managed to drop the string on a nice buck in uh, late December or early January. All you can do is, uh, like you say, that guy was either uh, really lucky or, you know, he put a heck of a plan together to get that done. Right. He's either the chess master or or he's, you know, me playing chess and bumbling through and making the right move. Um, but you uh, did bring up something that I thought was kind of interesting I wanted to go a little bit further on. When there's snow on the ground, that entry and exit to your tree stand, you stand out like a sore thumb if you're wearing, you know, standard camouflage. You know, they can see you with, with the woods laid out bare and flat with snow on it. They can see you for hundreds of yards. So either got to have a really bulletproof entry and exit where you're staying down in ditches and out of sight or switch over to wearing snow camo. Um, that's what we do during that late season when we're trying to get into stands where we can't stay out of sight the whole way in and the whole way out. Mm-hmm. We switch over to snow camo. And you'd be surprised what you can get away with wearing white. Um, you know, you, you can you can even see deer bedded and still get into your tree stands. Um, so that's the one little small tip that might help. You know, because you're just going to be a dark mass on a, on a white snowy background if you stick with your standard uh, woodland type camouflage when you're sneaking in and out. Sure, absolutely. And they tend to bed really close to their feeding areas too, which is kind of makes it even tougher yet because then you've got you know really wired deer bedded close to where they're going to feed, which compresses that whole pattern to the point where you know for you to get in the middle of it. I mean, it's almost like you're you're walking in on top of them and um, you just have to be really careful on, on how you go about that part of the hunt. Mm-hmm. Well, man, I'm I'm kind of getting depressed talking to you, man. I, you know, you're <laughs> well, not giving, I, giving me a lot I'm of encouragement gonna, here. I'm not going to blow smoke. I mean, this is this is you know we're telling people the truth here. Um, it can be done. There's no point in, in quitting bow hunting, but but at the same time, if we tell everybody it's going to be easy and this is how you go about doing it, these are the three steps. Then when it doesn't work for them, they're going to get discouraged and think that they're not a good bow hunter, and they're going to, you know, but let's just tell them the truth. You know, this is difficult, but it is possible, and and when you accomplish, you know, success during the late season, you've really done something, and, you know, I'll be out there every single day. You know, it's not like I'm going to quit, you know, and I know there's a bunch of our our readers that have open tags that are going to be out there, too, so, um, you know, just because we're not getting into deer every evening doesn't mean that we're not still having fun bow hunting. Yeah, and that's probably 
you know, to be honest with you, in spite of everything we've said, that that might be the most important take-home message right there, which is I'm not going to quit, and uh, you shouldn't quit either, because you know, being there is uh, half the battle. You know, you just can't kill them if you don't get out there. So uh, right. stick with it. You know, and if you don't yep. get it done. Turkey season's only four or five months away. <laughs> yeah, and then the next year's rut is what eleven months. <laughs> yeah, it's only it's only eleven months away, Bill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll start our countdown. Mention that to your wife at dinner tonight. I'm sure that'll get her excited. Yeah, yeah, she'll <laughs> like that. Oh boy. Well, maybe we can like spend a little bit of time talking about something more, you know, maybe more exciting than this year's rut turned out to be. Um, you know, you're in addition to writing you know, quite a, quite a, a good percentage of our, our whitetail hunting features. You of course have your center shots column and, uh, uh, you know, offer your equipment and tuning advice to people each month. I'm wondering, uh, what, what you're kind of seeing on the equipment and gear front as we head into 2011, you know, we've got the ATA show coming up, uh, I guess really just about exactly a month away now. And, uh, I've had an opportunity to see, uh, you know, quite a quite a bit of the new gear that companies are coming out with. I'm wondering if there's anything, Bill, that's caught your eye in terms of bows or any other kind of uh, bow hunting uh, equipment that you think is kind of exciting for the future. Well, I've had my nose buried, I guess. Um, you know, I've been buried in the in the hunting, so I don't really, I haven't been seeing things probably the way that you have. So, you know, what uh, I'm going to have to wait till the ATA show uh, to know kind of what's what's hot and what's new and and uh, so you can probably do a better job of telling me what to look for <laughs> but it's uh you know we we know what the trends are you know things are are moving toward um more i would expect more futuristic type of 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 equipment you know not necessarily the technology you know being like you know some kind of off the charts technology but just kind of a cooler trendier look it seems like you know we've kind of explored a lot of the the big aspects of, of bow design and, and equipment design. I mean, there's not like these big, broad frontiers that we have yet to, to conquer. It's more of, you know, tweaking what we've already got, making it look cooler, um, you know, making small improvements in the efficiency of the bows, making the sight pins a little bit brighter, you know, and a little bit more durable. And, and those types of advances are the ones that I typically see. And uh, those are fine. You know, I don't need anybody to reinvent bow hunting for me. Um, but if we can be a little bit more reliable, a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit better performance, a little bit more efficient, um, those are the types of, of improvements that that have staying power and, and the kind of stuff that I'll be looking for when I walk the halls at the ATA. Yeah, some of the uh, some of the things that I know you'll be you'll be seeing because um, Bill will be doing his annual Great Bows piece for us for our. Um, uh, for our April May edition, so next month at the show you'll be going around and shooting all the new bows. Of course, Hoyt, you know, made a bit of a splash last year with that uh, carbon uh, matrix, and mm-hmm. they've they've built on that for 2011. Their new carbon element bow uh, looks pretty sick. Uh, it's a basically a shorter version of that carbon riser, uh, those hollow carbon tube design, and, and I think that's going to be a real winner. Uh, you know, I'll be curious to see if other companies start to, you know, move toward using carbon more like that because it seems like the Hoyt uh, carbon matrix did pretty well this past year, and I think the carbon element at, I believe, is 28 inches, um, 
No, I, I may be wrong on that, actually. It may be a little longer than that, but I, th I think the carbon matrix was 35-inch, and right, uh, yep. they've shrunk the carbon element down. I think it's 31 or 2. Okay, 31 or 2. Yeah, that seemed right. 28 seemed really short when I said that. But, uh, yeah. you know, sort of more of your, what's your sort of sweet spot, it seems, for the contemporary hunting bows being in that range you know and i think that's right. going to be a winner for them and, and definitely there's some advantages there in terms of uh vibration and noise dampening as well as being not so cold for those of us who are going to be out on those late season hunts you know the the carbon is a lot easier on your hand than a, a frozen uh, block of aluminum is going to be um you know g5 is coming out with a new line of bows called prime I don't know if you heard about those, Bill, but they've got this parallel cam technology they're talking about it where the string actually splits uh, on both ends of the uh, uh, the bow where it goes on to the cams and it splits into two uh, and, and rides uh, on either side of the cam. There's actually dual tracks on both cams and it's basically a way to distribute the load evenly on the limbs and on both sides of the cables to eliminate cam lean and I haven't had a chance to see it in person yet I've just seen some photographs but uh, that looks really interesting so I'm sure you'll you'll kind of be looking forward to kind of kicking the tires on those those prime bows a little bit and uh, you know I, I'm trying to think uh, I think pretty much everything else is like you said you know just continuing to refine and uh, at least in terms of the bows you know just a little bit more efficiency uh, modest improvements here and there, but it just is kind of amazing how much uh, progress they're able to make every year because you kind of are tempted as you see the brand new stuff each January, you know, to think that oh, it can't possibly get any better. And yet well, so, somehow it always does. What I think too is, you know, you, you don't see, it's kind of a cumulative effect. Um, you know, to upgrade from one year to the next, I think that's pretty cool. You know, and we like for our readers to do that because our advertisers are happy. But in truth, you start to see the cumulative effect over a you know, couple, three years. And you'll shoot a bow, and then you think, man, this thing is awesome. It can't get any better than this. You might shoot it for three or four years, and you think, you know what, I'm going to see what else is out there. And then, by then, the technology has you know, baby-stepped its way to the point where it's a pretty good-sized step forward. Mm -hmm. And then you shoot that bow, and you go, holy cow, you know, the, this bow that I thought was so awesome that it couldn't get any better, this thing is way sweeter. And, and then all of a sudden you realize, that even though each year seems like a baby step forward in the efficiencies and the reliability and the shootability and whatever else, you know, there you know, ways you want to define the bow, even though it might only step a little bit each year, the, the cumulative effect of that over two or three years is, is really, really noticeable. Um, you know, I've got a perfect example of that. I had a bow I hunted with for uh, seven or eight seasons, and I thought, man, this thing is like carrying a rifle. It should be illegal. You know, I love this bow, and I'm never going to switch. I got my hands on, you know, one of the newer technology bows here recently, and, uh, you know, I'd always, I always shoot them, you know, and review them and so forth, and I never make a, a serious effort to say, well, am I going to put this one in my in my bag, uh, mm -hmm. just because, you know, I've had so much history with this one bow. Well, I, I shot one of the newer technology bows, and I went back and looked at the one that I'd killed so many deer with, and I said, oh, no, you know, this thing is, is way, way better. Um, so it's it, it kind of sneaks up on us. You know, these improvements, you know, even though they don't seem significant when taken individually, 
over time they accumulate to make a huge difference. And if you haven't upgraded a bow for two or three years, if you grab one of today's modern bows, um, they may look a lot the same, but they sure feel different and they shoot different and they sound different. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, it's uh... you will really notice. You notice the difference over the course of a couple of years. Absolutely, absolutely, and and actually, when you get a chance to talk to some of the people who are, you know, um, actually designing these things, you know, I had a chance to talk, uh, for example, with Matt McPherson from Matthews uh, a few weeks ago, and he was talking about their 2011 line, in which they're basically expanding on, you know, the success that they had this year with the Z7, and he's talking about... Um, like their new flagship bow is going to be called the Z7 Extreme, and it basically has a redesigned cam. And you know, he's just talking about the efficiencies. Um, you know, is basically the best that they've ever seen. You know, on a single cam bow, and it's just hard to believe. You know, that they can t- continue to to get it, like you said, a little bit better, a little bit better every year. And you know, if it's one percent a year. It might not seem like much, and I'm not saying that's what it is for that Matthews cam. I'm just throwing out an example, but you wait 10 years, and all of a sudden, that's a pretty big difference. <laughs> you oh, know, yeah. 10%, yeah. 10% better. So you know, I think every couple, three years, uh, and really almost every year, if you're into the fine points of, of, of bow design, you know, if you're really a, you know, a techie-type person and you do a lot of shooting, you'll feel and notice small differences uh, from year to year. But, you know, you, you combine two to three years' worth of advances, and it's time to upgrade nowadays. Uh, yeah. it's, it's that much different. It's that much better. Now they're, they're just better bows. Uh, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you another thing, Bill, that I'm seeing for um, 2011 that I think that is going to be really good news for the readers, for the, all the bow hunters out there, is, you know, it seemed like um, for the past few years here um, – you know, most of the emphasis on the part of the major bow manufacturers has been on the high-end bows, and you've seen a lot of good new technology come out there, but there hasn't necessarily been any real head-turning stuff in the the mid to lower range price range. Not that there weren't good bows there, but it just seemed like there wasn't a whole lot of uh, focus put there Maybe just maybe that's just from a marketing standpoint of what I'm seeing. But next year there's a couple bows uh, led by one that Mission Archery is coming out with called the Craze, which they just released. It's a $299 bow bill that actually is adjustable from 15 to 70 pounds of draw weight and 19 to 30 inches of draw length. So you're talking about a bow that can fit almost anybody. And it's got an IBO rating of 306 feet per second. It's 28 inches, axle to axle. It's got a 7.5 inch brace height, 80% let off. It comes with um, some string silencers. And I'm telling you what, I think that is pretty awesome, you know, for people who don't necessarily have a lot of money to spend, that there's going to be, you know, a bow for under 300 bucks. I don't think we've seen an offering, you know, quite like that in recent memory, you know, I think that's going to be a big winner, especially with the economy being what it, what it's been. No, I agree. And I think that's one area where, you know, as, as writers for the magazine, you know, we have to always keep an eye out for, you know, not only the flagship bows, the big, you know, the big high name, high dollar head turners that everybody goes into the pro shop to look at, 
we need to stay in touch with our readers that are on a budget. And, uh, you know, I'm on a budget. You know, I don't get to just buy whatever I want to. And most people are in the same situation. So, you know, I'm always looking for value. And, uh, you know, just having having some bows uh, come out on the market that really create a maximum amount of value for the reader, you know, I think that's a, a good service that the industry is doing. And, and as writers for the magazine, that's something we really need to keep our eyes open for so that we can, you know, blow the trumpet whenever we find those things. Right. Yeah, well, you had done that piece for us last fall on some of the, you know, the ready-to-shoot packages that are out there. And there's some, you know, so you had some nice bows in there for the, the 5 to $600 range that were coming, you know, a bow and all the accessories you need to get out there and hunt. And, uh, you know, I guess it's just a product of the marketplace, you know. Uh, companies have recognized that, obviously, people are, you know, having to run a little leaner and meaner in their family budgets the last couple of years. So maybe that's why we're seeing this. But I, I think it's a good trend. You know, Bear Bear has a, a bow coming out uh, for 2011 called the Home Wrecker, and it's a it's a ladies' bow, and that's a four a four hundred dollar bow that is, um, you know, pretty exciting too. It'd be a great bow too for honestly for you know just for any uh, short draw shooters or, or youngsters too. Um, right. And uh, that bow has. Um, it's a 29 and three quarter inch axle to axle. It only weighs 3.2 pounds, so it's a nice light bow. And at uh, at 50 pounds and 28 inches, that's going to produce arrow speed at 280 feet per second. So that's kind of an exciting bow too. And again, at 400 bucks, uh, I think there's some good bargains out there in the 2011 bow market. And like you said, of course, you know the the nine eight nine thousand dollar bows are going to be the ones that you know turn the heads but um not everybody you see in a tree stand is carrying one of those so it's nice to know that that technology and like you said too it's you know technology that you know t- tomorrow's technology is always the most expensive but a couple years down the road that all trickles down to these three and four hundred dollar bows and now all of a sudden you know you can buy a bow tomorrow for four hundred dollars that was better than a thousand dollar bow eight years ago by far so that's yeah, the good news yeah and i think that's that hits the nail on the head um one of the beneficiaries of increased technology is the low end of the market believe it or not because it trickles down you know as we continue to move forward technology wise the older technology gets pushed to the back of the of the price range and uh it's still awesome bows we didn't feel like we weren't bow hunting five years ago with the bows we had in our hands then we didn't feel like oh my gosh i've got some kind of a major you know deficiency in what I'm carrying, you know, so why should we feel that way about those same bows now? Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I don't have any issues at all with, with the budget price bows and the, and the value, you know, oriented products. I think they're, that's where, you know, we need to focus there. And, and as an industry, we need to make those types of products available to people because, you know, you just have to be careful with, with everything that we do nowadays. We can price people right out. Um, so I think it's healthy and, and you know, like we talked already, we're going to do everything we can to continue to not only talk about the, the high, <clears throat> excuse me, the high-end head turner type products, but also the value-oriented, you know, uh, keep some money in your billfold kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen here before we wrap it up, let's just uh, talk about maybe one more thing in the world of bow accessories, uh, and kind of give people maybe a little bit of encouragement to get out and. Um, do a couple things differently in 2011, even if they're not going to buy a new bow. You know, this is something that you talk about fairly regularly, kind of a theme that comes up. 
uh, in your center shots columns and the videos that you do to go along with that which is you know there are things that if you haven't done by now and you're a serious bow hunter you probably just ought to do because it's gotten to the point of being a no-brainer and what I'm talking about is um, you know some things that you can actually put on your bow to take advantage of some of these new technologies that are going to make you a little more effective in the field you know when I look at uh, the bow accessory category uh, we're talking about sights and rests and stabilizers and releases and things like that for 2011 you know I just see the the drop away rest market continuing to explode and the thing that I really like to see personally because of the way that I hunt and the fact that I'm a little bit of a a hyper guy who doesn't always hold quite as still on stand as he ought to um, you know most of these dropaways now are all featuring some kind of a full containment feature you know when dropaways first came out uh, a lot of them didn't have that and you know you could still have situations where the arrow could basically come off of that launcher and and maybe whack your your riser or or fall off and hit your your tree stand platform or what have you but nowadays with with the full containment feature and kind of the idiot proof design of these things I, I don't think there's hardly any reason uh, not to at least consider you know playing with a drop away rest if you haven't done so already just because of the added forgiveness that it gives you what's your thought on that Bill? No I agree 100% there's in my mind there's only two types of rests on the market anymore I'm sure that there's somebody out there making rests that's going to be mad, mad at me, but hopefully they're not listening. <laughs> I shouldn't hope that nobody's listening, right, right, Christian? Everyone but that guy is listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I think there's 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 the full capture rests, you know, your whisker biscuit style rests, and and the ones that have total full containment, where they make contact with the fletching universally on all sides to stabilize it, or you know the types of rests like you're talking about the dropaways. In my mind, unless you're a finger shooter, there should be no other rest on your bow. You know, and I know that's that's big talk, but there's really no reason. There's no downsides uh, to these to these category of, of rests now, and they are so much better from a lot of a lot of perspectives. Not only you know fletching clearance, which used to be the nemesis of everybody that shot carbon arrows, you know, because they were so small. The you know there was such a hard project of getting the fletching to feed through that little gap in the rest mm -hmm. um, now we're all shooting carbon and it makes total sense you know because we can shoot rests where you know there's no fletching contact um, you know obviously that's that's a, a huge key uh, and then you know the, the other style rest I mean there's you know the full capture there's you know it's my way of thinking that's what you should be shooting if you're not this is the year to upgrade uh, because you will notice improvements in your aero flight improvements in your idiot proof um, performance on on the tree standard when you're stalking um, and I look for that stuff all the time just like you do I mean I do dumb stuff you know we all do there's 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 a thousand ways a deer can get away and if I can eliminate you know a hundred of them by making good equipment choices now there's only 900 ways they can get away and I'm 10% more effective <laughs> so you know with that in mind I'd, I'd, I'd look for idiot proof products all the time and uh, like you mentioned, there's no reason not to shoot those. I mean, I I don't see any reason to uh, to go with other styles that that don't have you know the capability of, of 
Yeah, I don't think there's any, like you said, I don't think there's any real advantage left. Not that, uh, I mean, I guess if you wanted to really come right down to it and say that there's no moving parts, the whisker biscuit, you know, or the hostage rest line mm -hmm. from, from Octane are still, I guess, the most idiot proof in that there yeah. almost is literally nothing that could go wrong. Um, right, and they're pretty quiet too. You know, when you shoot the bow, there's nothing there that rattles or vibrates or clanks or flaps or whatever. So they're going to make your bow quiet. Uh, and there's not a lot of downsides to them. There's little teeny tiny little downsides, you know, for the for the super high end target shooter, you know, because now basically your arrow is in contact with your bow longer. You know, so it's like, you know, if you're looking at the engagement time, if you want to call it that, or you know, the guys who are shooting the old muzzle loaders that would you know, go you know the little twos you know they have to hold the gun steady for a long time i think mm -hmm. they call it the lock time yeah and uh the quicker you can get the arrow off your bow you know the, the more less chance you have is. messing up right <laughs> yeah. exactly so yeah. that's the only downside of those full contact full capture type rests you know versus a, a, a drop away is that you do have contact with the arrow you know the, the bow does have the ability to influence the arrow for a slightly longer period of time and, and otherwise um i don't see any downside to them you know you, there's fletchings out there that won't curl or or you know be affected by going through the bristles and you know there's there's lots of ways um to customize your setup to take advantage of those kind of rests so um anyway that's uh yeah there's no there is no uh, upside to the old style um We've probably worn this subject right out, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, I think we've we've said what needs to be said, and you know, for folks who are listening and they're interested in you know getting kind of the full story on all of the new archery gear for 2011, it's good news for for you folks because our February March issue, which will be on sale the first of February and uh, in subscribers mailboxes probably late in January we'll have uh, our complete 2011 new gear guide and we'll be bringing you all the latest in uh, new equipment and then as we move forward through the year as I mentioned Bill will be giving you even more details about the top bows of 2011 and the April May issue and as we always do here at Peterson's bow hunting we'll continue right on through the year to make sure that uh, you know we're doing the most comprehensive uh, coverage of uh, archery equipment and uh, products so that you guys are on the cutting edge and uh, we're glad to have guys like Bill Winky who are not only uh, well accomplished hunters but very very knowledgeable uh, archers uh, and uh, bow mechanics as well on our field staff so that we've got go-to guys to to have around when we've got questions or we need people to evaluate the latest stuff so Bill we thank you for sharing your whitetail wisdom thank you for sharing your uh, shooting wisdom and we look forward to uh, continuing this conversation sometime in the future with more positive reports from the field okay yeah we'll do a late season wrap up and see how, see how that goes yeah yeah that's right tune back in february folks for uh, <laughs> bill and christian talking about our you know 150 uh, late season bucks here yeah we can only we can only wish so uh no, it's my pleasure, and uh, you know anything I can do, just give me a call. Thanks, Bill. Have a great uh, day, and uh, good luck the rest of the season. You too. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio with editor Christian Byrne. For more information on this and other topics, pick up a copy of Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine on newsstands now.